Welcome to a special holiday episode of the I Wanna Believe podcast. I'm Nomar Slevic. Guess who's back? How'd you like that introduction, Val? Oh, God, I love that. Got to be one of the best songs out there. Awesome. All right. (laughs) Would you please remind everyone of who you are and what you do? Well, hello. I'm Valerie LaFasso. I am an empathic medium and author of the Tangled Web of Friends book series. And there are three books out in the series currently um, with a fourth on the way. And, you know, I love the holiday season being a book nerd. One of my favorite all-time books is A Ghost Christmas Story. And, of course, you all probably know it. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Got to be one of the greatest ghost stories out there. You will be haunted by three spirits. Three spirits. Expect the first tonight when the bell tolls one. Couldn't they all come at the same time, Jacob, and have it over? Expect the second on the stroke of two. The third, more mercurial, shall appear in his own good time. In early 1965, odd rumors began to circulate through the small English town of Warminster. Bizarre sounds had been heard on the morning of Christmas 1964, which would be followed by a long period of strange sightings. Soon, Warminster was swarmed by UFO enthusiasts, all wanting to learn about the thing. Before we jump into the episode, I did want to give a reminder that all of our I Wanna Believe social media and email are in the show notes. My brand new book, We Only Come Out at Night, is now available for purchase. This book is a collection of short horror stories and can be found online at slevicstore.company.site. You can get it at the Green Hand Bookshop in Portland, Maine. Valerie's Tangled Web of Friends book series can be found on Amazon. Just check the show notes for those links and more. Alright, let's get into The Warminster Thing. I have never seen anything like it. It was fantastic. 
the people in the town, the reporters, all the dailies. My phone didn't stop ringing. We had them knocking at the door. I've never seen anything like it. One of the world's most prolific cases of mass UFO sightings. A case of strange sounds, odd ships in the sky, and so much more. This is the unsolved mystery of the Warminster Thing. The majority of the information for this episode is from Michael Wellen and the Unresolved website. Other sources include the BBC, Mental Floss, and a newsletter called the Warminster UFO Newsletter that was released between 1971 and 1973 by Ken Rogers. Also, throughout this episode, I'll be playing clips from a 1990 documentary about the Warminster thing. In this documentary, you will hear first-hand accounts from witnesses that were on site during these sightings. Warminster was first settled during the early medieval times, which spans from the 5th to the 11th centuries. It is located in western Wiltshire in southwestern part of England. The town sits on the western edge of the Salisbury Plain and is approximately 15 miles from Stonehenge. Everywhere you look in this part of England, there are circles, round barrows, tumuli, constant reminders of an age gone by, and the special significance which Salisbury Plain had for the early Britons and the Druids who built their most sacred temple here in the form of a circle. Whalen writes, quote, Odd sightings and sounds were reported irregularly in Warminster dating back to as early as the 1930s, incidents that predate the Second World War, as well as the advent of the modern science fiction genre. However, few and far in between, Bizarre encounters around Warminster seem to predate the rest of the world's UFO craze by several decades, end quote. The early report mainly consisted of odd sounds described as crackling and scratch-like. The reports of bizarre sounds continued through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. However, it wouldn't be until December of 1964 when rumors of something otherworldly may be taking place in the small hamlet. I looked in that direction, there was a silver plane and a pink one, like a, between a pink and a red cerise colour then, right side by side, and they were in that direction, and there was no cloud, but I don't know where it went to. I heard this noise, this hell of a noise it was, and um, came down, you know, it was a bit misty, foggy, and uh, well, it, was, it was like as if a tin can was floating nuts and bolts, you know. And somebody was rattling it. What I did see was a green shimmering light for about a quarter of an hour. Well, it's hard to explain. It's like a bright light with a red light in the middle. Like cigar shape, glowing at each end. I saw something over there between those two bungalows, and to me, it looked as if it was about 500 feet high. No higher. It seemed to be hovering. It resembled something like a comet, but comets are white, so uh, this one was orange oval color, so it certainly wasn't a comet. A local journalist's article about the bizarre encounter was published in the Warminster Journal in January of 1965. The article actually became the newspaper's most popular story ever published in its history. It had all begun quietly enough at Christmas. Tucked away beneath their New Year calendar was a report of a noise, unearthly and terrifying. 
Suddenly, the silence was broken by a crackling sound emanating from the Bell Hill direction. At first, she thought that it was simply a lorry unloading on the hill. But it passed over her head and became louder and louder. Waylon wrote, quote, Arthur Shuttlewood penned a small article that was hidden away in the middle of the Warminster Journal, titled Bell Hill Mystery, Weird Noises on Christmas Morning. The article detailed a story given to Shuttlewood from a local housewife. That housewife, Marjorie Bai, had woken up early on Christmas morning. At around 6 a.m., she began walking along the street to a nearby church for Christmas Mass, and along the way, began to hear some unsettling noises in the region of Bell Hill. These noises, she described, were very odd, like crackling. One report would later state they sounded like branches being pulled over gravel, end quote. The residents of the small town and surrounding areas wrote into the paper with claims of their own from that same Christmas morning in 1964. It started off Christmas Eve 1964, um, which we published a very respected member of Warminster, strange noises on Christmas Eve, rattling on the roof, no known calls. And really, I suppose that's what started it, and from then it snowballed. Reports multiplied, eerie shapes, ghostly lights in the sky, and more than anything, that awful, terrifying noise. Mildred Head reported that she was startled awake at 1.25 a.m. She reported, quote, My ceiling had come alive with strange sounds lashing at the roof. It sounded like twigs brushing against the tiles and got louder and louder until it reverberated like giant hailstones. End quote. Soldiers from a nearby army base were awoken by what sounded like, quote, a huge chimney stack from the main block ripped from the rooftop, then scattered across the whole camp, end quote. At 6.30 a.m. Christmas morning, Roger Rump and his wife were also stirred by a similar noise. They described it as sounding like, quote, the 5,000 tiles on our roof being ripped off and then put back on again with an enormous clatter, end quote. Shuttlewood began to archive the various reports as they came in. Over the following months, he began to notice that the reports started to take on an extraterrestrial nature. Wayland's website stated, quote, Bright and bizarre figures in the sky were beginning to appear regularly to locals and others that were drawn to the craze. Descriptions of these odd figures varied from metallic orbs, similar to the UFOs depicted in popular culture, to cigar-shaped crafts. Pairing up with most of these sightings were reports of odd sounds, which varied from booms to other kinds of bizarre droning or whizzing. Some witnesses described their cars failing after viewing one of these figures in the sky, while others reported their animals responding oddly. In particular, dogs seemed to be heavily affected by these UFOs." End quote. Shuttlewood was a bit skeptical of the reports at first, but in September of 1965, he had his own encounter. 
he viewed a cigar-shaped UFO hovering low by his home. Shuttlewood had his own theory. But I could see what they meant. Having seen the thing myself now, I think I can see what they meant by that description. Now, would you tell us exactly what you did see? Well, I saw, uh, this will always be indelible on my mind because um, it was 3.42 p.m. on the last Tuesday, that's September the 28th, last Tuesday in September, and I was going upstairs, we, we live in rather a high up flat over Monumental Masons. They call us death row, incidentally, because we have the hospital, doctors, undertaker, and then we're the Monumental Masons next door. Uh, but apart from that macabre observation, um, I went upstairs and I was completing a story for a magazine which is coming out in April. I went up for my notes, but my attention was arrested by this huge cigar shape in the sky. Now, had I normally been walking underneath that, I'm sure it would have assumed the proportions of nothing but a dense white cloud. But from the angle of vision that I had from the top of our house, I could see a peculiar hump, uh, uh, a yellow or an amber burnished protrusion from the top. And I'd never seen anything like this in all my life. And it was nine months after the, this thing started. I saw this with my own eyes. I dashed straight away for a camera. I got the camera lined up. And the setting was, was about eight. It's a beautiful, clear afternoon. Out of the window, this thing came along over Colloway Clump, which is over there, northwest to southeast, gliding along a gentle giant in the sky. Um, I trained my camera on it, and I felt the camera jumping about in my hands. That was the first uh, unusual aspect. Uh, it didn't frighten me, but I felt like sharp prickling needles down that side of the hand, the wrist, that side of the face, and my eye watered for two months afterwards on that side. That was the exposed side to this thing. Now that proved to me that whatever was on board, or whoever was on board, could see me, could see this apparatus of mine. It, it threw out some concentrated force field. I'm quite serious about this, which deliberately with the deliberate intent of gumming up the camera. And, of course, they succeeded because nothing developed from 25 feet of film except an 8-feet portion burnt right through. That's all I had on my camera. If the they're trying to make a major impact, yes. one would think they wanted all possible publicity. Why should they want, then, to gum up the camera? Well, I think uh, the reason that struck me at the time my wristwatch incidentally stopped, I didn't, didn't notice that until afterwards. Um, I think that, I don't think that they're so worried perhaps about photography, but if they're thousands of years advanced, uh, from, you know, uh, over us, and they've learned perhaps thousands of years ago to outlaw war, and you notice that the heaviest sightings of these people on this earth are just preceding a world war or some um, nuclear experimentation, some danger threshold, shall we say. Uh, if that's the case, and they saw the camera there, what's to prevent them being at no more than half a mile up at that time, I'm sure, thinking automatically, here's one of those crazy Earthmen and he's got a gun on us. I think that that's, it's a fear uh, that they have that I might have opened up on them, you know, with a machine gun. For all they knew, I think that uh, that's why they gummed up. After that incident, he became not only a believer of the phenomena, but a staunch proponent of the bizarre happenings. The BBC reported that people in the town saw him as the voice and champion of the Warminster mystery.
Throughout the summer of 65, more sightings of UFOs occurred. On June 3rd, there were multiple eyewitnesses to a large cigar-shaped craft in the sky. The sighting was first reported by a family in the town of Haytesbury, which is just one town over from Warminster. Several others in Warminster also saw it later that day. On August 17th, in the small neighborhood of Borham Fields, it is reported that an explosion-like sound was heard and felt. Residents said that their homes shook and many ran outside to see what happened. One of the reports stated that a, quote, monstrous orange flame was seen in the sky, crackling and hissing, end quote. As time went on, more and more people saw silver orbs, classic saucer-shaped ships, and the cigar-shaped UFO. In September of 1965, a local tabloid, the Daily Mirror, published the only known photograph of the Warminster thing. It was taken by Gordon Faulkner, and the photograph has since become an icon of the UFO ministry in Warminster. He managed to take a picture of a flying saucer that hit the British press in a big way and then went round the world. Mr. Faulkner, in fact, has done much to put Warminster on the flying saucer map. This is how he got his picture. I had a camera with me. I was taking it down to my sister who wanted to borrow it. And, uh, well, as I say, I just had the camera with me. And pure luck, I just undid it and took a picture. The object was staying still all this time, was it, or was it no, moving? No, it was moving. But moving slowly? It was moving fairly fast. I wouldn't like to say how fast, but I couldn't say how fast. Now, some people have said that when they try to take a picture of one of these things, there's been some mysterious force or radiation that stopped the camera from working. Did you find this? It didn't stop my camera from working. Have you had people say that this picture is a fake? Of course I have, yes. I mean... What do you say to them when they say that? They're entitled to their own opinion. I know it's not a fake. And it doesn't really bother me what other people think. That photograph can be seen on the cover of this episode, and there is a link to the original image in the show notes. During the same time frame, it is reported that there were other types of mysterious incidents occurring. Whalen wrote that there were, quote, reports of entire flocks of pigeons being killed at once, as if they had been snuffed out in midair and then dropped to the ground. There were also rumors that rodents had been found in the region, having been mutilated prior to their death. According to local gossip, these rodents had been found with large puncture wounds which were totally unexplained, end quote. Reports, seemingly reliable, spoke of whole flocks of pigeons struck dead in mid-flight. Soil samples from key areas turned up the remains of moles and mice, their bodies riddled with tiny holes. As 1965 wore on, the population of Warminster ballooned to over 17,000, nearly double. The majority of the town's new residents were short-term and took up space at the town's hotels and motels, all wanting a glimpse of the thing. From all over the world, the watchers came, scanning the skies from the hilltops around this Wiltshire market town. In four months, 400 sightings had been reported. In the pubs and in the shops, the talk was of little else but the thing. And generations of television reporters were to cut their teeth on the mystery. A town hall meeting took place to discuss the ongoing mystery and was to be recorded for national broadcast. However, experiencers ended up sharing their encounters and voicing their concerns, which caused the authorities to have no time to make an official statement about the phenomena. On August the 27th, 1965, the council chairman took the extraordinary step of calling a public meeting. 
the town hall was besieged and the Warminster legend had begun. Reports continued through the end of the year, with many witnessing more UFOs and hearing odd sounds. In fact, there was a spike on Christmas Day, 1965, which was a year to the date of Marjorie's original experience. The craze continued into 1966 despite dwindling sighting reports. That area in and around Warminster started to embrace its otherworldly reputation as shop owners of all types began selling UFO and alien-themed merchandise. One resident of Warminster even opened a UFO-themed bed and breakfast. In 1967, two police officers reported an odd sighting, quote, in October of 1967, two police officers claimed to have seen an aircraft over the town of Devon, just a couple of hours away from Warminster. Speaking to reporters afterwards, PC Roger Willey and PC Clifford Waycott seemed convinced that they had seen something out of this world, end quote. They said they were walking on a hill, a high hill outside Warminster, and uh, suddenly, without any warning, from a wood nearby, two of the strangest little flying machines they'd ever seen suddenly shot up into the air with a terrific noise, and flames and smoke, and they disappeared right up the way they went over the horizon. As the years went on, Warminster and the surrounding areas continued to provide odd sounds and sights. Residents and tourists alike continued to report objects and lights in the sky, and by the mid-1970s, crop circle reports began to surface. Many attributed this not only to the mysterious thing from 1965, but the region's proximity to Stonehenge. The mystery of these extraordinary circles, which appeared in a cornfield at Westbury exactly two years ago, has never been explained. Circle spotters discovered the most startling example in what was becoming a puzzling summer. Beneath the White Horse at Marlborough, a formation of eight circles appeared, six of them forming what looked remarkably like a great crucifix. Most recently, Warminster held a conference to mark the 50-year anniversary of the thing. That same year, local graffiti artists made a sprawling work of otherworldly art on a concrete wall. They memorialized the UFO history of their town from stories that have now become local folklore. Despite multiple authoritative reviews, the sightings and odd sounds remain a mystery and continue to this day. And that brings us to the end of the Warminster thing and this holiday special. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the show. Season 5 starts next year. Kyle is back in the co-host booth and we've got 10 all new spooky, mysterious, and downright strange stories to share. Val, thank you again for joining me. For all these holiday shows, it is always a pleasure. It really is a pleasure, Nomar. I am very honored to have been part of this podcast, and I'm very grateful that I have had this opportunity. And as always, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in Season 5. I'm Nomar Slevic. I'm Valerie LaFosso. Now, before we go, I did want to let you know that there was a Skywatch that was recorded in Warminster in 1967. 
It was with Keith Palmer and Ken Rogers, and it was shot by Dickie Howitt. This video that you can watch on YouTube, though, will be a link in the show notes. It appears to be just raw audio and video from these townspeople doing a skywatch in Warminster hoping to see the thing. I have included the audio from that skywatch after the closing song. Now, in regards to the closing song, I'll apologize right now for what you're about to hear. It's actually playing under me right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Alright, happy holidays. It's a merry UFO Christmas With aliens for company They came and transported me away For a party on Christmas Eve Warminster, the 6th of May, 1967. Outside the main post office, a group of people and press gathered for an all-day and night vigil to watch the skies for unidentified flying objects. The Skywatch organizer was Keith Palmer. I've invited the press to attend our watch. I believe the general public ought to be aware that at least there are people who are concerned and are attempting to seek an answer to the mystery of the skies. Arthur Shuttlewood, editor of the local Warminster Journal, seems to have seen flying saucers in the area and has photographic proof. Author of a recent book on the Warminster mystery, his enthusiasm for the phenomenon at least matches that of many researchers. Warminster is surrounded by high hills and plains. To the east, Salisbury Plain, to the northeast, Cradle Hill, the main sky-watching point, to the southwest, Clay Hill, a secondary observation point. Charles Wakeley, area sky-watch organizer for Trowbridge and Warminster. Many things have been seen in this district. Various things such as pulsing lights and mistaken car headlights is a very popular thing, which is very often seen here. As for military around here, as, as you know, it's on the edge of Salisbury Plain. It's a very militarized area where a lot of testing is done, artillery ranges and tanks and what have you. And at night, they very often pop um, star shells and flares, which can be easily mistaken for UFOs. On top of Cradle here, here, Hill here, a very high horizon, and uh, at night you cannot see this horizon. And very often, car headlights is easily mistaken for UFOs like the reflection off the sky and that, glow cloud base. Um, as for local opinion to these things, around Warminster is a bit mixed. Some people think there may be something there. A lot of people just laugh at it and put it down to just sort of imagination hallucinations. 
Measuring and recording apparatus is an integral part of any watch. Keith Palmer explains. With two astro compasses, one on Cradle Hill and one on Sack Hill, we may be able to get an elevation of bearing on the objects in the sky above us. The UFO detector works on the same principle as a compass. The needle is detachable and points north just as in an ordinary compass. But any electromagnetic or ordinary magnetic effect will turn the needle left and right and set up a buzzing sequence, which in turn will make a little yellow ball go to the top of a small thin rod. This will tell us that an unidentified flying object is in the area. There was more than one kind of UFO detector. John Worley, a physicist from Southampton. It seemed to me some while ago, and, and modern evidence shows fairly clearly, that this magnetic um, effects from these um, UFOs. I built a detector which would uh, detect the sort of vehicle that I'm looking for. Uh, in fact, this detector detects three things. It detects oscillating magnetic fields in ways, one quantitatively, the other qualitatively. It's very cheap equipment. Thirdly, it records thundery condition. By six o'clock, and under frequent showers of rain and blustery winds, much of the optimism of the early afternoon had dampened. Nick James, a reporter from Associated Press, had mixed feelings about skywatches. Light was just red when I came up here, and people were wandering around with hands in their pockets, very little. Most of them anticipate staying here all night until, the, until it gets light again. It seems to me, uh, from uh, the reporter's point of view that they're going to sit here and watch a blank sky all night and they'll be disappointed in the morning. They're obviously more hopeful than I would be. I want to get away from here as soon as I possibly can. I can tell you it's too cold to sit out on a lonely hillside in the middle of Wiltshire all night waiting for a light to appear. If anything did happen, I'm not quite sure what I should do. I should probably have the worst attack of butterflies I've ever had. I don't suppose, in fact, that anyone would believe me. I should try and follow the story to everybody who'd take it. But um, apart from a, a sort of a witness eye view account in uh, something like a Sunday newspaper or a magazine, I don't think many people would be interested. No, if the press has played out now, we had this sort of mad spasm back a couple of years ago when it started out first. All the newspapers had about the warmest sort of thing printed. Then the photographs started to appear. Then I think people what have seen these things don't like being interviewed for fear of being laughed at and ridiculed. They sort of see these things in the sky sort of casually, just sort of shrug the shoulders as well, maybe something natural, or just something, you know, which may be unusual, and you just sort of forget all about it. Although the sky around Warminster was watched throughout the night, the famous Warminster thing refused to show itself. The reason why 150 people gave up a weekend to stare at a blank sky in far from ideal conditions is not an easy question to answer. It's all part of a problem, an unresolved problem. Just what are unidentified flying objects and where do they come from? The people who had spent the night on the hills surrounding Warminster had at least hoped to be a little nearer the solution.